Hello and welcome to PodRocket, the podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try it for free today at LogRocket.com. I'm Tejas Kumar, a developer relations consultant, and today I'm joined by Logan Kilpatrick from OpenAI, Logan's developer advocate at OpenAI. And today we're going to dive into all things OpenAI, including GPT-4, the Whisper APIs, Langchain, and so much more. Logan, welcome. Thank you for having me. This is going to be a ton of fun. Just to get started, I was wondering if you could maybe introduce yourself and tell the listeners about your role at OpenAI, how you got it, what you do on the daily, and more. Happy to. So my name is Logan Kilpatrick, joined OpenAI back in December to help lead and build our developer relations function at OpenAI. Before that, was doing a bunch of other developer advocacy type work in various ecosystems, was a machine learning engineer before. So it was a lot of natural fit to join OpenAI. And originally when I joined, we really had the challenge of top of funnel awareness about what our API was actually capable of. So that was the historical context from me getting hired. And then my first day was actually ChatGPT hitting a million users. So we didn't have that top of funnel awareness problem anymore because there were so many people who are now excited about what we were building. So my rules really evolved into helping our product teams better understand what developers want, how we can deliver on what the expectation is from developers so that people can continue to build their companies, their cool projects, all that stuff on top of our API. I also help do a bunch of ChatGPT stuff these days. So I help run our ChatGPT plugin store, have a team of folks who who do all the reviews and policy and take down stuff related to running a, a store as it stands today. So it's been a ton of fun, lots of different stuff. My day-to-day is very different, I think, on any given day, just because of how quickly we're moving and shipping stuff. And yeah, there's always a fire to be put out. As a DevRel professional and consultant myself, I've just been so curious about what this would look like at OpenAI, because as you mentioned, you went from a few to over a million users so quickly. You mentioned the work you do today is buffering some of the feedback about the product and relegating that to the product teams. I'm curious if you could speak a little bit to how exactly you do that. I'm assuming the volume of feedback you get is tremendous. Um, And so there must be some type of process to filter, sort, and then delineate that. So there's lots of feedback coming in about very different things. And I think that's actually the hardest piece of this problem is not only like filtering from the different places it's coming in, but also understanding like, what are the things that like we have direct control of and we can make a short-term impact on? So like there's people who are giving feedback about ChatGPT as like a product experience. There's people who are giving feedback about like the models in ChatGPT. And then it's the same thing for our API, like the actual API models people are sending feedback on. They're sending feedback on like the actual experience of using our API. And I think it's like oftentimes the context in which someone is saying something about one of those four things is not clear. Like somebody will just say, hey, this isn't working for me in X, Y, and Z use case. And then I spend a little bit of time trying to understand like, who is this person talking to? Should it be coming to me? Should it be to some of these other teams? So we don't have a super formal process. We do have the ability for end users to send us feedback about models. I think it's like openai.com slash model feedback or something like that. But this is like generally a muscle that has to be built. ChatGPT has a little bit better because they have built in UI flows that like enable this. For the API, we don't have that. So it really is like a lot more going and talking to developers, trying to help them build evals, and then triggering that feedback up to various teams from a product experience standpoint. That's so interesting to hear that this function of DevRel, of spending a bunch of time understanding user feedback and getting context is so 
universal, be it at OpenAI with ChatGPT, the models, or at Twitch or Twilio or whatever. Like this work is the same. I love that. I would be remiss if I didn't ask on behalf of also the listeners if y'all employ the use of AI in doing that and gathering context and understanding. You would have to use a model to classify feedback about API, about models, and then also add maybe missing context or something. Yeah, 100%. So we do have a bunch of internal tools that help us do stuff like that. It's actually very simple to like set models up to do this. We also use some like off-the-shelf products that have that those products actually also use our models to power those types of features. So we have sort of both of those. But yeah, it's, it's definitely helpful. I do think that you lose a bunch of the nuance when you take people's perspective and filter them through a bunch of models. It is like, for me, it's oftentimes more valuable to like see the raw feedback than like process 20,000 pieces of feedback and then look at the aggregate overview because I generally have a sense of the 20,000 combined together opinion perspective. It's like a little bit easier to like generalize and understand that perspective. But I think it's often like the nuances that are really difficult to capture. And those nuances are extremely important in the context of the way that our models work. So that's the challenging part is like everyone has like such a unique use case and they want the model to be better for that use case. But it's oftentimes like hard to articulate how the model has changed for that use case. What I'm hearing is AI is not replacing the role of DevRel work. <laughs> it could definitely help. I do think that AI plus DevRel is going to be like an exciting future. But yeah, I, I think there's still a lot of human work that has to happen. I think a lot of people listening also have this image of OpenAI folks and even like Sam Altman's house being like this thing full of Jarvis systems. Hey, open the blinds. Or, but it's just a smart home, but on steroids. I'm glad you're able to also emphasize that the human side of actually doing stuff and understanding context is pretty valuable still. That's actually the most compelling part about OpenAI is like the people. I think people over-index right now and like the actual value add of having all of these models like the models are very helpful but like having an incredible team of humans who do this work is probably much more useful than i would bet on that team than a team a subpar team that's using models today you mentioned in your previous answer the use of eval and the community submitting evals to OpenAI. i'm curious especially for those listening if you could clarify an eval what it is how it works and how OpenAI addresses such submitted evals yeah so we, we have a we released it a few months ago I think around the GPT-4 launch time, but essentially the general idea is we have this structured way of writing prompt completion pairs. So you can essentially say like, here's some given input, here's the output that I would expect. And then the model, it will try to generate an output based on the prompt inputs and then look at the delta between the provided output that you gave and the provided output that the model gave and it'll score this. And essentially in the moment you can run the eval and see like what's the delta between what the model is outputting today and what you would actually want the model to output. There's a bunch of other types of evals that you can write, but essentially like encompassing all of these different use cases where I have a very specific output that I want the model to create and being able to assess how good it is at actually creating that output on a consistent basis. And you can add like hundreds and hundreds of different examples. And this is super useful. So you can imagine you're an e-commerce shop and like you have a very specific way that you want the model to output responses to users in some specific format, including like specific information. And you can just put in like hundreds and hundreds of those examples, either from like your real world data or just synthetically generated. And then you can run that 
eval on old models that we have on the newer models. And you can see like, how are the models progressing over time on my specific use case? We run the public facing evals when we release new models to get a signal for how well the model is doing. This sounds a little bit to me like supervised learning, right? Where you guide the machine learning process through feedback. Am I close here or what's the delta? The caveat here is that we're not training off of the evals, so it's not improving the model performance. I would say that it's more akin to like a unit test suite where like you're essentially giving, you know, here are the inputs and outputs that you would expect. And then when that isn't the case, you essentially like the model eval accuracy gets dinged. And then at the end of it, you can say, oh, this eval is like 50% on GPT-4 and like maybe GPT-3.5, it's like 60% or something for some reason. So you can see how well the model is doing on that like unit test, if you will. Why do you all not then train on evals? Would that not give a cue to the model to like respond more this way? We could train on the evals. The problem would be that then we would overfit. So then all the evals would like look, it would essentially be like fake precision where it looks like, oh, we're really good at these models. And like the reason we're so good is because we actually have <laughs> that data directly in our sets. So, like you would actually want these intentionally to be like a standalone set of data that's not present. Like in a perfect world, you would actually check the training data to make sure that it's not contaminated with any of the data that's in the models. Like theoretically, there could be contamination across that data depending on what information people are putting in. So yeah, in that case, you would get like false accuracy that the model is like really good at this use case. That's fantastic. And thank you for clarifying that because my naive mind was just like, oh, you can just train with this. But you mentioned exactly why that's a bad idea. You also use this term overfitting. And I know for the listeners of the podcast, they'd love to know more about that. So if you could say a few sentences about overfitting, why it's a problem and how it works. Yeah, 100%. So let's use fine tuning as an example. So fine tuning is the process of taking like one of our models that exists today and making it specialized for some specific use case. Um, so an example of fine tuning would then be, I take the base stable diffusion model from Hugging Face and then fine tune it using some photos of me. So I get these more specialized models that I could be like, make me Spider-Man swinging through Manhattan and it would draw something. Yeah, exactly. And the challenge with overfitting is if you put in a bunch of pictures of you, if then the next user shows up who doesn't look like you and tries to use that same model, the problem is that you've given it all of this signal that it should be doing something. And then that doesn't generalize well to like the next user. And this is super important when you think about these use cases and like the breadth of how our models are being used today. Like if we were to take a bunch of data from like one specific group of people and flood the model training process with that data, you would then generally not have a great outcome for people who like aren't represented in that use case group of people. And that's as a broad perspective comment, it's why like having data about different groups of people all around the world is so important because you need to make sure that these groups are represented. And like, if all of the training data is about people in the United States, for example, like the models are going to end up having this like very US centric worldview of how they should be doing things and how they should be interacting. And like, do you actually really want the model to have the context of like different people's perspectives all over the world so that it doesn't get pigeonholed into that mindset? So then I'm wondering if you're at liberty to speak to how training does work on the models, if it's not through evals or if it's not through things that can be overfit into one specific domain, how do you all train such that it is more inclusive and diverse across the world? I'm not deeply involved in the model training process by any means. Generally, the way to augment and help in situations where you might not have access to 
diverse enough data is to go and procure data. So you can lose tons and tons of different companies and, and entities where you can either buy pre-existing data sets or work with organizations to actually have net new data created. Yeah, having net new data created is something that is super common. When I worked at Apple and I was a computer vision, working on computer vision problems, we did the exact same thing where we had like a very specialized computer vision problem that we were trying to solve, which was taking an image and then make some decision based on that image. And the data set that we needed essentially didn't exist in the world. So we had to go off and pay people to like annotate hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these images so that the model could perform well. That's generally what you need to do. Like the most interesting data is probably like human created, manually curated data like that. Okay, that, that clarifies a lot of things. I want to pivot a little bit and talk about GPT-4. I'm sure we've all seen the diagrams of GPT-3.5 has this many parameters and then GPT-4 is this big circle next to it with like billions more. But it's just these two circles, you know, they look like the sun and the earth effectively. I'm curious if you could speak to that, particularly clarifying parameters and their role. What do those even mean? What is even a parameter? And what makes GPT-4 so much bigger than GPT-3.5? A couple of caveats. One, that image diagram that you're referring to, while exciting to look at, is not proportional to like the correct orders of magnitude. So I think Sam, our CEO, mentioned before that it's just not right. It's not representative of the actual parameter count. In general, I do think that people over-index on the parameter count as like a simple mental model heuristic for the capabilities of models. My intuition is that maybe that you can do this indexing and using that heuristic today, but long term, it's not actually fundamentally the right way of looking at it. Like just because if some new model comes out that has a hundred trillion parameters, like it doesn't actually mean that it's going to be bigger is not always better. Like it actually depends a lot on the data and the training process and the architecture and stuff like that. But generally parameters are just the number of neurons in the network. I don't know if there's a good way to simplify this, but if people have seen visualizations of like uh, how a model looks and there's like different layers and there's these different parameters and the different layers, which essentially the idea is if the parameters activate in a certain sequence that represents like essentially like the thinking process or like the ability to like answer a question essentially. And so generally the more of these neurons you have, the more broader the problem set is of things that you could potentially answer. That's my hopefully high level overview of, of why the parameters is people are talking about this. And generally, again, the idea is you have a bunch of parameters and therefore you can potentially answer more questions in a deeper way. It's a broader pool to be inspired from, so to speak. There's also talk now of new code interpreter feature in ChatGPT that people are calling GPT 4.5 in disguise. I'm curious if you could speak to that at all and either clarify, is it in fact GPT 4.5 or are people just making stuff up like they did with the parameter size discrepancy? People like to speculate, which is always exciting for people to speculate. Yeah, I think when GPT 4.5 is available, we'll release it to people. And after we can make sure it's being released in such in a safe way. I do think that the excitement about code interpreters specifically highlights how useful these tools are specifically to like the developer persona. The fact that the output for engineers and people in the software industry is text in a lot of cases, um, just like bodes so well with the capabilities of these models. Um, if you think about other roles where it's like much more, not that engineers don't also have to do these things, but like your output is tied to things that are just a little bit 
less text-based. It's just like much more difficult. Like if you have to interact with people, having a model that can like generate text doesn't help you a ton. But I think for engineers, because the core deliverables, oftentimes code that you type with your fingers, it's just so easy to get excited about this possibility. And the fact that the model can run the environment of code interpreter can actually run the code and not just generate it and has that like iterative loop. The real magic part is like if the code doesn't work in code interpreter, it actually it tries to regenerate the code and based on the error messages, do it. Yeah, regenerate it successfully, which is so exciting. That is really exciting. While we're talking about ChatGPT and OpenAI for developers, there was this beautiful presentation when GPT-4, I believe, was announced where the presenter showed it this picture of here's a napkin sketch of a web UI, make it happen. But since then, I haven't been able to use this feature. So what's up with that? <laughs> I was sitting there with Greg while he was doing that demo. It's such an exciting demo. I, I don't think I had good perspective on like how excited people would be about that demo until after the fact. But yeah, so the ability for GPT-4 to take an image input and then take some action based on that is coming. Generally, it, it's a very computationally difficult task to do. And historically, we have been extremely limited by compute resources, which is why like ChatGPT used to like go down and not be available is literally because there wasn't enough GPUs in the world to run ChatGPT for how many people were showing up to use it. We've since expanded capacity and all that good stuff, but GPT-4 with image inputs, it will be coming. Just the, it's the timeline itself that's a little bit fuzzy. Did the Microsoft acquisition have something to do with the availability of ChatGPT? I assume it did, but OpenAI is an independent entity from Microsoft. We have a multi-year, multi-billion dollar partnership with them, but we are strictly speaking like an independent entity that's governed by a nonprofit. So we're not owned by Microsoft or controlled by Microsoft. The OpenAI capped profit entity is run by the OpenAI nonprofit entity, which is wholly independent. This is something I think worth discussing. I appreciate you clarifying that. So as you can imagine, I speak to a lot of people attending a lot of conferences, etc. And this is the thing that skeptics come to me and they're like, oh, come on, it's just capitalism all over again. And I often have to do the work that you just did. So I appreciate you sharing that. I also appreciate you highlighting this interplay, nonprofit and the for-profit, the profit cap company. And this is, I think, something a lot of people don't know about. And frankly, from at least what I see on X or Twitter is people just show up with half knowledge and complain. So I want to spend a few minutes, if we can, talking about those things and clarifying them, not necessarily silence the skeptics, because I think that's also wrong, but to inform the skeptics about the actual truth. So what I want to do is give you an analogy, a comparison, and then you can speak to how close or far that is from reality. Mozilla is the example I'm using, because Mozilla.com has a for-profit entity that they try to get profit from things like search, etc. But there's also the Mozilla Foundation that is fully open source and fully nonprofit from day one. And there's this interplay between companies where Mozilla.com is trying to make profit from how, but really the overseeing governing board body is the nonprofit entity. How close is that to the open AI model? Yeah, this is a really good question. So I'll say generally based on your description, it sounds like there's some resemblance. I don't want to I'm sure it's much more nuanced, like from an actual structure perspective. So I don't want to make blanket statements without having a good understanding myself of like the actual structure of Mozilla. But in general, the interplay seems to be similar in the sense that OpenAI's capped profit entity has 
is again governed by that nonprofit entity. And I think the biggest difference in general between this relationship and like a traditional for-profit company is that traditional for-profit companies, and this is always so fascinating to remind ourselves of in in, in the capitalist world, is that for-profit entities have like a legal fiduciary duty to their shareholders to maximize profit no matter what. And you would actually like potentially be put in prison if you break that legal obligation that you have to your shareholders. And that's like a fundamentally different obligation that that OpenAI has, which our obligation, you can read about this under in our charter, is to actually ensure the benefits of this technology, one, actually benefit all of humanity. And I think that's like such a different perspective on what our role is as an organization versus a traditional for-profit entity. I think a lot of the details about like how we distribute those benefits to society still have to be worked out. It's important to note that if you think about Google doing AI and Amazon doing AI and all these other companies doing AI, like at the end of the day, their goal is to maximize profit for their shareholders because that's the structure of the entity that they're governed by. OpenAI does not have that goal. And yeah, I think it's, it's nuanced, but in the end of the day, especially given how powerful AI technology is going to make a huge difference. So you mentioned the cap profit company, the for-profit company is governed by the nonprofit, but at the same time, any for-profit company has this legal obligation to maximize profit for shareholders. So how is that balanced then? Because it would seem the governance by the nonprofit would nullify this legal requirement for the for-profit but the for-profit would still be bound by that because it's a for-profit company. So I'm not seeing how they fit together. It's unclear to me how much of the nuanced structure of this is public facing. I don't want to comment too deeply. My understanding of the structure is that because of the for-profit governance, we don't have that traditional obligation. Just to jump in here, I think you mean the non-profit governance, not the for-profit governance. Yeah, yeah, sorry. But the non-profit governance is what mandates this the very unique structure. And again, I don't know the specific details of like how that's worked in, but we definitely have some blog posts and things like that. So I'll, we'll see if we can link something. Sure, sure. And we will put that in the show note captions. I think that's really important. I'm sure you have a front row seat to the skeptics, as do I, but like here is, oh my gosh, they're coming to take our jobs and take our lives and it's capitalism is going to rule the world and it's going to be like horizon zero dawn. We've talked about GPT-4, we've talked about 4.5, we've talked about the napkin sketch and the image recognition coming. Among developers, what I hear a lot is talk about the Whisper APIs. Everybody's talking about the Whisper APIs, which is probably a good indicator of success on your part as the developer person. But I'm curious if you could quickly walk us through the Whisper APIs and what that means for developers. Whisper is actually one of the models that we open sourced, I think back in maybe 2019, something like that. It's a speech-to-text model, so essentially you can put it in audio and it'll transcribe it into text. The feedback that we heard from developers was, hey, it's awesome that this is open source. It's great. We could use it. But it's actually really difficult. Like, it takes a lot of work to spin up the correct resources to actually, like, use this in a production setting or for my hobby project. So we made it available in our APIs, so and now developers can have a simple interface to just do speech-to-text. And we have both transcription and translation capabilities which are extremely capable from what I've seen. Like you can really do a lot of stuff. And this is actually the capability that's powering. Um, I believe we have the speech to text capability available today in our iOS app and I don't use Android. So, I'm, but I'm also guessing it's available in the new Android app as well. And people have said that they think that the speech to text capability is so powerful that they just 
literally use the ChatGPT iOS app in some cases just for this transcription capability. I, I think for people who are non-native English speakers, as an example, like it just has a really good understanding of like some of the different ways that people speak more so than some of like the out of the box models. So that's been the coolest thing that I've seen a bunch of like great threads on Twitter, people talking about this and yeah. And the APIs allow people to like build this into their own stuff. Awesome. I can't wait for the YouTube content to show up of people comparing Google translate the whisper translate, et cetera, and see the real difference there. That sounds really exciting. I personally have not used it yet. After listening to you, I want to give it a go and see how it works, especially as I learn. So I live in Germany and I'm trying to learn German. And so this might help with that. Um, Logan, I want to touch quickly on plugins and how they work. I understand they they follow the open API spec. So if you could speak to that, but also the return from a plugin, once a plugin responds, can that be used in training data or is that then also presenting the overfitting problem? Yeah, great question. The basic idea is that you can take an API that already exists or make a new API, define the structure of way of the way that that API works using the open API file. So like the very interesting thing is if you can think about this technology versus like the app store, for example, on, on iOS, like in the iOS case, you actually have to send Apple like all of the code, like the entire package of code to be reviewed in the context of the ChatGPT plugin ecosystem you essentially host these files yourself so you're you're sort of re retaining the location you control who has access to these and they essentially just point to the server and point to the definition of the open api file which is the again the structure of essentially what functionality your api has um, so you can imagine, for example, if you have an API that tracks sports scores or, or something like that, you can also, which is super helpful and gives developers a ton of flexibility, you can have an API that has thousands and thousands of different endpoints, but you could only expose three or four of those through this specific open API file to ChatGPT if you only want it to do like some very basic things. So you have a ton of flexibility. Again, essentially ChatGPT, when you have a plugin installed, it sees that open API file. So it understands like what actions are available to it. And then based on the user query, like if the user's query was, what's the weather in San Francisco? Um, if you had a weather plugin, like the weather wizard plugin installed, it would go and look at that open API file, see like, oh, here is how I have to formulate a request to this API. It'll actually write the code to send that request. It'll send that request. It'll get the response back. It'll interpret the response from the API, and then it'll provide the output to the users. And then as far as the training question, so the thing that's actually trained on is the response to the users. So if your request is like, what is the weather like in San Francisco? Send the request to the API, get this JSON object back, has a bunch of metadata that has all this information. If the response to the user is the weather in San Francisco is 86 degrees, like that is the piece that's trained on. There's so much interesting things that can happen with plugins. I think I get excited talking about it because there's so many cool things. For real, I could I could speak to you for another hour and a half, honestly. I do want to not leave this podcast without talking a little bit about Langchain. I've used Langchain at length. I absolutely love Langchain. And I think it has a really promising future. I'm curious if you could speak to one Langchain for the listeners, two, the I believe Langchain has this this actor model as well, where you can process the output of LLMs and add really multiple processing steps, almost building like autonomous agents. That's what I call it, agents. So if you could speak to that, but then also share a little bit about the interplay between Langchain and OpenAI, because as far as I know, Langchain is just an open source project. It's not owned by OpenAI. So if you could elaborate on that a little bit, I think we'd appreciate that. 
Yeah, sure. So Winechain is an independent for-profit entity. They have an open source. I don't actually know what the name of like their for-profit entity is. It might be Langchain. It might not be. Langchain, as people commonly refer to it, is the open source project that Harrison and the rest of the Langchain team actually created. Right now, I think the general sort of way of looking at it is it's a wrapper on top of large language models that essentially makes them easier to use. Like it has a bunch of built-in tooling and things like that to make them easier to use. I will say that like in general, it's all things that OpenAI for our users would want them to have the ability to do. It's wonderful that the Langchain folks are like willing to do this work and create something that works so well for people who are building on top of our models. Langchain also has a new, like I think it's like a SaaS product that they're building called Langsmith, which helps people in more production use cases with monitoring and debugging and all that type of stuff, which is again, super, super helpful. And like all things that make a ton of sense. They're very much like the rough edges of working with large language models. So yeah, I, I think people should a hundred percent be looking at Langchain, should a hundred percent be looking at, at other tools that are out there. And, and also like thinking about where the opportunities are to build more tools, like the space in general, the ecosystem of large language models is like very much in its infancy. And there's such an opportunity if you're somebody who likes building things for developers to actually build some really net valuable product and get some meaningful market share. And I think that's what's happened with Langchain is like, they were probably trying to solve their own problem. And um, now they essentially have like this massive market penetration, which is, which has been awesome to see. Yeah. Fantastic. Unfortunately, we're out of time and there's a lot more to discuss. That just means we have to have you back on the podcast at some point again soon. Before we wrap up, what I want to do is ask you three questions and then you pick the one you want to answer. They're vastly different, but I want to give you that choose your own adventure. Number one, what are you generally perhaps disproportionately excited about at OpenAI that the rest of us aren't? Two, anything on the roadmap that's coming up that you can share? I guess that kind of ties into one. Or three, for anyone looking to penetrate the market and get into AI more so now than before, what advice would you give them? I've got hopefully an answer that will touch all three points, which is the thing that I'm most excited about is fine-tuning. I really think that fine-tuning is not only going to unlock so many use cases that were not possible before, but also give people what they've been looking for since day one with this technology, which is how can I build a differentiated business that solves my users' problems and I get continually better and I'm not stuck using the same things that my competitors are and have to differentiate through UX and some prompting layers and things like that. I really do think that fine-tuning is probably going to 10x the impact that GPT-4 and this AI technology has had so far. And I'm really excited that the way that OpenAI does fine tuning is like so simple from an interface perspective. And is also, we don't require that you give us your, like we don't train on the data that you give us through our API, all that type of stuff, which just ends up being like great for developers. So yeah, it's going to be so crazy to see this impact. And I think we'll look back in two years and be like, wow, we were really excited before, but now people are way more excited because you have your own personalized model to solve all these very specific use cases um, using fine tuning. And it's, it's going to be incredible. Now, of course, we'll have everything in the show note captions about how people can get started with that. Logan, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for personally teaching me so much about things that I didn't know from what it means to do DevRel at OpenAI to how the nonprofit entity governs the for-profit entity and all the way through plugins, Whisper, Langchain. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, this was wonderful. A ton of fun and would love to, to be back. We need to check in every year and see how the predictions and, and everything is shaping out. 
Fantastic. Let's do that. Once again, thank you for joining us on Pod Rocket, and thank you for your interest in tech.